0: Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Father, we ask that you would speak and that we would be able to hear, Lord with hearts of faith to receive your grace. Amen. So here we are in the fifth week of what we call the season of epiphany, and we're looking at this beautiful reality that God, God speaks. I know that seems really simple, but it's a profound thing to proclaim that, God chooses to reveal himself and his nature to us and that he speaks into our reality and our world in the most direct manner ever in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Christ comes to us and he uh, reveals the nature of the kingdom and, and the king. And we've looked at several passages during Epiphany. We don't have time to go back and even just briefly touch on each one, but it's been quite a journey. Last week, we saw the not only the allure of Jesus, but the offensiveness of Jesus Christ. And how in the synagogue of Nazareth, he challenged their hearts of scarcity and nationalism and racism. And he challenged their sense of having to perform their way into the kingdom. This week, we've just heard read from Luke 5, as he's teaching the crowd, he speaks a very specific word of instruction To Peter when he tells them what to do with the boat, and I want to look at the first part of that, and then he says something to Peter in Peter's response about fear. What we know about Christ is that he is on a mission. He's on the move. By the time we get to Luke 5, we've already heard not only the words spoken by God at his baptism, but he's done a miracle in Cana. He's he's said in his, I, I called it his inaugural address, he proclaimed the nature of his administration uh, when he announced in Luke 4 what, what it looks like when the king arrives and the kingdom is here. And we know that he is saying, I, I'm going to go and I'm going to do these things. Now, it's interesting, as soon as he proclaims the nature of his kingdom in this mission, he immediately begins to assemble a local community of very ordinary men and women to join him in that work. He's proclaiming to all nations, all neighborhoods, here's what I'm coming. I'm bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And he turns to very ordinary people and he says, I'm calling you by name and I want you to join me in this this global world changing movement. Don't miss that. Christ is on a mission and he immediately pivots to this very local reality in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem and calls very ordinary people to join him. And in order for them to join them, there is going to have to be a change inside of those that are called. And there are so many things that could be said about this one small passage that we're going to look at in Luke 5. I want you to note that here's a change that happens in Peter, and I believe it's a change that God wants to bring about in every one of his sons and daughters. It's a change from inadequacy, where we say, I am not enough, I don't have what it takes, to a place of being truly empowered for kingdom mission, from inadequacy to empowerment. That's the change we're gonna see happen as we look at this passage. I actually believe it's a very human problem to feel inadequate. This is a modern challenge for all of us. I happened to come across this years and years ago by, I don't remember what preacher I was listening to. I've always been kind of a fan. Ever since I was a kid, I learned audibly. So some preacher was quoting years ago. This was in 91. Hey, that's, that's a deep track. 1991. Madonna was being interviewed in Vanity Fair. And she said something. It's, it's said so well. I want to use it today that many years later. She says something about this sense of inadequacy, just on a human level, and she nails it. She, she articulates it so well. Just listen to these words. She's being interviewed about her career. She's, a, she's an American singer-songwriter. If you don't know she is, she's still around. And she says, listen to this quote, "...all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy." I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it, and I discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, she says. And that's what's always pushing me. What she is describing really well is this human problem, this sense of I am inadequate or ordinary or mediocre. And in order to become something or somebody special or worthy of being loved, I have to perform. I think it's helpful to use this kind of language because it's such a problem in Denton County. Performance-based identity. This way of going about life where my worth is determined by other people's approval of my work is alive and well in every Christian and non-Christian home that I see in our reality in North Texas. In fact, it's so part of our cultural water that many of us followers of Christ don't realize even the way we're raising the next generations. We are saying to them, your worth, your worth is based upon other people's approval of your work. And we will drive our children to perform their way into having some sense of self. I'm here to tell you, it's part of the reason we have such an epidemic of pediatric mental illness. Your worth is not determined by your work. This is a modern problem, but it's actually not just a modern problem. It's an ancient problem because it's a human problem. In fact, the pattern that we see in scripture over and over again is God picks up the phone and God calls somebody. And he says, hey, I'm looking for Moses. And Moses says, wrong number. Hey, I'm looking for Ezekiel, wrong number. Isaiah, wrong number. I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too inarticulate. I'm too broken, I'm too messy. God, you've got the wrong person. This is a pattern, not only in our modern day, but it's a pattern all throughout scripture that when God draws near, the human response is to say, I don't think you know who you're dealing with. And God, in his grace and in his goodness, no, 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 I've got the right number, the right person. I'm calling you. And we respond often like Peter. Peter says here in Luke 5, I don't think you understand who you're dealing with. Jesus Christ has just been speaking and teaching the crowds. Don't, Don't miss that. It's both word and deed in the kingdom. Don't miss that he's been proclaiming the truths of the kingdom of God to people. And on the heels of that, they, they, they couldn't hear, them, hear him really well. And so they, they get him out onto a boat. You may not, it might not just jump out at you. So let me just say, um, if you've never heard a voice over water, it's an amplifier. It's amazing how water will carry, will carry sound. They put Jesus in the boat. They pull him a little bit away from shore. The shoreline works. as It's sort of a nature's auditorium here. And Jesus teaches. And as he's teaching, not everyone's wrapped in attention. We have a few disciples, they later are called disciples, who are just washing their nets, maybe sort of listening in over here. They fished all night. This is when you catch fish. Fish actually have a pattern of how they live and they they eat at certain times. And that's often late in the evening and very, very early. So you want to fish very late in the evening and very early, like, like as the sun is barely coming up. And they fished all night and they've caught absolutely nothing. These are not recreational fishermen. This is their profession. This is their livelihood. It's their community's livelihood. And they've caught absolutely nothing. Jesus finishes teaching And he wants to offer some fishing advice to Peter. He does. And when he had finished teaching, it says in Luke chapter five, at the end of verse four, this is the first phrase. We're only gonna spend a moment on this phrase. This this really, these are two different sermons that I've crammed into one. It'll be okay. Here's the phrase, put out into the deep. Put out into the deep and let let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Master, this is essentially, remember, Jesus is standing in the boat. Peter is saying, Captain of the boat, Master of the boat. Uh, we've, we, we, we know what we're doing. And we fished all night. We came up totally empty. But why would Peter listen in this moment? Depending upon which film, if you've ever watched a film of this moment, you might mistake the reality that Peter has, this isn't his first encounter with Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that Jesus has already shown his power and authority over human illness and that he healed a family member of Peter's prior to this moment. Peter says, but at your word, master, I'll let down the nets. And his instruction was to put out into the deep. But you've got to put yourself right here in Peter's sandals and understand that he's tired. This is not like a hook and line and worm moment. Like, hey, make, make a cast over there real quick. Okay, let me grab my, it's not like that. These are heavy heavy nets, hundreds of pounds, and now they're soaking wet because they've just been cleaning them, and Jesus says, get them from the shore back into your boat and go out into the deepest water of this sea and let them down. That's, that's my fishing advice. Now, it's not quite like me telling Tiger Woods how to have like a better short game, but, but Jesus was a carpenter, not a, not a fisherman, I realize he's Lord of the universe, but in this moment, Peter's like, ah, uh, we, we don't totally know who you are, but, but we're gonna trust your word and we're gonna go and do what you say. Put into the deep. That's the phrase that he says to Peter. I don't speak Latin or read Latin, but when I made a trip, a pilgrimage to Israel a few years back, I came across this little phrase in Latin because it happens to be the name of a Christian chapel, uh, temple uh, chapel, right on the Sea of Galilee. Here's the, here's the phrase, Duke, D-U-C-N-I-N, Altum, put into the deep. It's a sanctuary that's been built right on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, when you're sitting in the seats that you're in now, you'd be looking at a communion table that's in the shape of a first century boat and the windows behind make this boat basically sit on top of the water of the Sea of Galilee. That's pretty creative. David Stocker, that's pretty creative. That's that's pretty cool. And the name of the chapel is Duke in Altum, put into the deep. Now, just briefly, put into the deep. There are some lessons that cannot be learned in shallow water. Sometimes God takes us to places that we don't really want to go to teach us what we really need to know. It's in the deep water that Peter becomes aware of his own inadequacy. Peter recognizes Jesus' authority where? In the deepest of water, at a moment of utter weakness and fatigue and failure and inadequacy. God says, push out into the deepest place and put down your nets. If you ask any missionary, anybody who's been a pastor for very long, anybody who's been a disciple of Jesus Christ for any kind of time, you'll know that the way this works is you've got to step into the Red Sea before the water dries up. Jesus says in other occasions, you know, Peter, get out of the boat. You've got to get out of the boat. You've got to put out into deep water, even when you're in a place of feeling like, man, I don't have the strength to do that. I don't have the resources to do that. I don't have the smarts to do that. I don't have, I don't have. Yes, trust his call to the deepest. It's in the deep places that you will discover your inadequacy in God's not only sufficiency, but abundance put into the deep. What an appropriate name to name this chapel that they've built there on the Sea of Galilee. You've got to obey Jesus's words and put into the deep before you can see his hand at work. Churches and many disciples in North America are prone to hug the shoreline, to play it safe. The pattern in the kingdom of God is we have to push out beyond our comfort zone into deeper water. That's actually not the main point, but that's one of the points of what's going on here. Their nets get so full in verse 6, that they actually begin to tear. The boats are so full that it's almost like they're going to sink. And what we hear is that Peter's never seen a catch like this. This is a professional, commercial fisherman. He's never seen a catch like this. Incidentally, it's now called a St. Peter's fish. That's what we understand that they caught. Uh, And if you'll come to Israel this November, you can eat one every day at a buffet, a St. Peter's fish. It's pretty amazing. The scholarly estimates suggest that this might have been as much as 2,000 pounds Of fish. And Peter's response, let's get to that. Peter's response is not just an overwhelming economic provision for his needs and the community, but he sees a reality in this action of Jesus that shows him that he's not dealing simply with just a gifted individual. This is divinity, this is God in the flesh. You are holy, and I am not. And Peter falls to his knees, I I think, if I've read it right, in a boat full of fish, slimy fish floundering everywhere. He falls to his knees and he confesses, Depart from me, a sinner. He has this nagging sense go back to me, I am not enough. It's exactly what Peter is saying here. You don't need to get near me, I'm too much of a mess. But what is Jesus's response? This is so significant. We're only going to touch on it briefly. Notice, notice North Texans what Jesus doesn't say in this moment. Because the modern response to performance-based identity is often to say, now, now, we know you've done your best. You, Peter, you're actually amazing. We're gonna, I'm going to help you. I'm going to become your life coach. I'm going to help you to see how amazing you are. That's not what, it's not what Jesus says. The response to Peter's performance-based identity is not self-affirmation. What is the response? Pay attention to how different this is. Jesus says a phrase that I wanna spend some time on. First, he tells him to put into the deep, but then he says, in response to the confession of Peter, there is nothing to fear. Peter's like, because I'm sinful and you're holy, Jesus, you got to get away from me. And Jesus is like, because, Peter, you're sinful and I'm holy, you got to get close to me. Peter's thinking, what's wrong with me? And Jesus is thinking, I'm going to build a movement with you. Peter's going through all the things that are wrong with him, all of his problems, and Christ sees his potential I'm just a fisherman. What a beautiful truth in God's kingdom. Did you know there's nothing wasted in God's kingdom? There's nothing about your story or your competencies or your brokenness or your pain, your grief. There is nothing wasted in the kingdom of God. Even what the enemy has meant for evil in your life, he turns it for his good and for his glory. Jesus with a big, I can just see a big old Jesus grin on his face and he says, Peter, I'm gonna gonna make you to be fishers of men. I'm gonna take everything about your uniqueness and I'm gonna use it for my glory. Peter is stuck in this sense of self-loathing and inadequacy. And Jesus says, there is nothing to fear. Let me tell you, anyone who has walked this Christian life for very long knows that you sometimes quickly, but sometimes later on in your journey, you will come to face sort of a mirror of your soul and you will see more clearly than you ever saw how deep your brokenness actually goes. I believe it was Teresa of Avila that really helped us to begin to understand this, that, that saints have dark nights of the soul. That, that, that's, that's where it happens. That that as you journey with the Lord, you'll come to the place where you'll begin to see maybe more clearly than you ever saw what a mess of motivations and struggles and brokenness your heart actually is. And you know what is really sad? Is that many Christians that I've journeyed with, and there's been times where I've almost fallen to this as well, they say what Peter says and they throw in the towel right there at that moment. Depart from me. I'm too much of a mess. And and they get stuck. They literally get stuck in the state of self-loathing and inadequacy. Many give up at this point. I want to tell you, Jesus did not want Peter to give up at this point, and he doesn't let him, and he doesn't want you to give up if you're stuck. I don't know if you know this, but first century rabbis didn't call disciples like this. This is not the pattern. He disrupts it in at least two ways. First of all, disciples typically went to the professor and said, hey, could I study with you? But something's different with this one. He's calling Peter and James and John, and and let me tell you, by God's grace and power, 2,000 years later, he's calling you by name. This is the kind of king and teacher and master that he is. He's calling you by name. And and notice who he picks. Now, I don't know if you've traveled to one of those three-fourths world. We sometimes call it the third world. Have you ever met a third world commercial fisherman? If you haven't, you need to, because it's helpful for you to hold this up and to realize this is not where you would start if you were thinking, I need top-notch sort of world-changing leadership potential. He starts on the shores of Galilee, and he picks Peter, James, and John, and their lives, like ours, were a total mess apart from Christ. And he calls them by name. He calls these ordinary blue-collar fishermen by name. Jesus sees a redeemed and empowered Peter. And everything that is in his past is gonna be used by Christ. So what do you and I do? A couple of takeaways. What do we do with the fact that Jesus Christ is calling someone who is sinful, that he's calling someone who is afraid. Did you catch that? He's afraid. Peter's afraid. And he's calling somebody who basically is saying, I don't really have what it takes. I'm not up for this. What do we do with this? Well, let me just tell you, there's a lot at stake for you and me in this passage. What if if coming to the realization that you don't have what it takes is not the problem, but the solution? Like, like, what if that's your resume? What if that's on your application to be one of his sons or daughters? Is I don't have what it takes. You have to hear Jesus's words. I'm telling you, you've got to hear them for yourself. There is nothing to fear. I don't know if you've stared your sin and depravity in the eyes, but when you do, it's intimidating. It can be kind of scary. Uh, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, sometimes it goes back to generational patterns. And you stare it in the face, you go, man, I just feel like I'm in chains. I don't, I don't think I can get over this. And Jesus says to Peter and to you and me, I've called you and there's, there's nothing to fear. Eventually, I need to tell you that things get worse for Peter. As we wrap things up here, let me tell you that three years later, Peter doesn't have it all together. Three years later, Peter has actually blown it way more than he ever has before in terms of his own relationship with Jesus Christ. So he journeys along with Christ over these three years and he's bold and he's brash and he's he's a little bit impulsive. Isn't that interesting? The most impulsive apostle Jesus renames as the rock. Do you you see what's going on? Do you see that it's actually at the place of your fragility and brokenness that he brings about a total reversal and renaming? So Peter isn't steady. He doesn't have it all. He thinks he does. And he actually tells Jesus as much. I mean, look, if everybody falls away, I'm not gonna fall away. Like, Jesus, I'm your man. I am steady. I've got this. That's part of Peter's problem is he has this pattern of, I've got this. And we know he doesn't have it. In fact, he falls flat on his face. He denies Christ three different times. And as far as we know, when we get to John chapter 21, there have been no words spoken between Peter and Jesus after Jesus's resurrection from the dead. Kind of a big deal we're not gonna talk about the fact that this happens after the resurrection much, but it's after the resurrection, Jesus walks onto the same shore and guess what these disciples are doing? What they know to do, they're fishing. And in this moment, Luke 5 is one moment where we have a miracle catch. I believe it's in in all the old commentaries I came across, it's called the miracle of the draft of fish. It happens in John 21. In John 21, a similar miracle happens, except this time the, the, you know, fisherman from the shore, not fisherman, sorry, the man on the shore says, have you caught anything? Um, I love to fish. And when you are coming up with a goose egg and you've been out there 12 hours and somebody from the shore wants to hear about how it's going, it's like, it's like salt in the wound. It's, ter- it's a terrible feeling. And they say, no. Well, just put your nets on the other side of the boat. <laughs> okay, whatever. Uh, let's, uh, whatever. Well, let's, whatever, we'll try it. <laughs> so they do it. Just to humor the guy on the beach, they do it. They throw their nets on the other side of the boat. They bring in this miraculous catch, and John whispers to Peter, Peter, it's Jesus. And how does Peter respond? You got to hold on to this before we end. How does Peter respond? The first miracle of the fish in Luke 5 Peter says, I'm such a mess, you got to get away from me. In John 21, he's blown it. He hasn't gotten better. He's actually gotten worse. How does he respond? I know we didn't read it. Let me tell you. Peter, fully clothed, a fully clothed Jewish man, jumps into the water and swims to Jesus on the beach. Why? What's changed? What's changed? Why is Peter all of a sudden responding differently, particularly given that he's right now blown it. He's betrayed his Lord. He he fell away. We say it every week on the night that he was betrayed. Peter is beginning to understand the beauty of grace. He's beginning to understand that this isn't about me having it all together. He's beginning to move to the place where grace is really animating his life. Did you know it's possible to kind of enshrine your self-criticism and self-loathing? It's taken me a long time. There was a reason that I was not sort of engaged until I was almost 33 years old in ministry. I was called much sooner than that, much earlier than that. And I couldn't get over my brokenness. I couldn't get over what a mess my motivations were. And I actually got locked into this this sense of self-criticism. Some called it humility. It wasn't humility. It was pride. It was like the dark side of pride. And really, it didn't begin to change until I began to understand grace. And I, I... I didn't, like God by his mercy and grace Help me to understand that Brian, this isn't all about you having it together. The only way that you'll really fail is if you fail to continue following Jesus. Peter says in Luke 5, depart from me and he wants it just to be over. Like, but, but Christ won't have it. And let me tell you that the hound of heaven won't have it. He doesn't want you to stay stuck in your self-criticism and self-loathing. He tells Peter, there's nothing to be afraid of. And we know that he goes on to say many more things to Peter and to us. He ends up saying, I am the light of the world. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. He ends up enlisting Peter to be the rock of the team of apostles. He makes the flippant, impulsive one, the steady one. This is what his grace and mercy does. And so, Church of the Resurrection 2022, we're not coming out of a moment where you go, man, I feel really strong. I feel really put together. I feel like I've really got this. Most of us don't feel that way. Certainly most churches in North America don't feel that way. But I tell you, what, a, what an opportune moment to follow Jesus's words and the spirit will apply this in your life just as you need it. Would you put into deep water? Where is he calling you to do his kingdom work? There's a, a, a pastor in ACNA, really gifted leader, who is a ministry coordinator Um, who helps people basically understand their giftedness and passion and to put it to work. And she has come up with a little phrase where she said, if you can understand what's on your heart, what's your passion, and that you have a sense of inadequacy, you're probably ready to get to work. Where is he calling Church of the Resurrection and you and your family and this community to put into deep water and to trust him and to realize there is nothing to fear? Heavenly Father, as we come to your table to dine with you, to feast with you, would you speak your heavenly words of invitation and challenge over us, your sons and daughters, this morning? God, we're so thankful that your word is alive and active, that it gives us exactly what we need today. Draw us by your grace as we come and feast with you in the name of the Father and the Son